Our scripture this morning is from Matthew chapter 17. We're on page 822, if you're using the Bible under your chairs. Matthew chapter 17, verses 9, which is kind of in the middle of a section, all the way to the end of the chapter, verses, verses 9 through 27. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to, the, came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and he suffers terribly, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked him, and the demon came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? He said to them, because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the half-shekel tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax, from their sons or from others? And when he said, from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free, however, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. This is God's word. Good morning. Welcome to Trinity Community Church. My name is Mike. Really glad to be with you here this morning. Thank you to everybody who's brought meals to Ashley and I and, and sent us your congratulations. Lucy is healthy and happy and super, super cute. Um, the newborn sleep schedule has kicked in in full swing. So I stand here before you in like the advanced stages of like sleep deprivation. There, there is a sermon in front of me. I just don't remember how it got here. <laughs> so 
There's a high likelihood that what I'm about to present to you will be entirely incoherent. So I'll be, I'll be you know, counting on your guys' patience as, as we dive in. Today's passage is, is buried in a lot of details of what it was to be a Jew in the first century. So we start out and we've got these sort of like nitty-gritty Jewish end times expectations that we're working through. And by the end of the passage, we are literally talking about taxes. So there's a lot of sort of like first century details, and it might seem alienating at first, but as we dig in, what we're going to find is that it's actually hugely important for how we view our place in the world. So specifically, it explains our place in God's plan for history. This passage has something to say to us about God's plan for history and our place in it. And so here's how we should think about our place in God's plan for history. We should think of ourselves as living in between times, okay? We live in between times. So what what do I mean by that? So we just celebrated Easter. So Easter, what what occurred, what we celebrate on Easter, the, the resurrection, for Christians, it's far more than just like a really cool miracle that helps us believe in Jesus. It's certainly not less than that, but it's also more. The significance of the resurrection is is that it's like the beachhead for the new creation. So you guys familiar with that term, uh, a beachhead? So this is a a term used in war. And what it refers to is when an invading army sort of lands on the shores of their enemy, and they try to take essentially the shoreline. They try to establish this like base camp area they take a, a large swath of territory right on the beach, and from that, basically, base camp, they start sending in troops to, to take more and more and more and more territory. So it's sort of the spearhead at the beginning of a full-scale invasion. It's actually the, the, the move that the Allied forces used in World War II when they stormed the beaches of Normandy on D-Day. So it was a horrifically violent battle right? Horrifically violent. You had tons of soldiers knowingly sacrificing themselves, and they were doing so because they knew that if a beachhead could be established in Normandy, then the war in Europe would functionally be over. And that's actually exactly what what happened. There was no way for the Axis powers to push back the Allies once they'd taken Normandy. So the war didn't end with D-Day, though, right? The war didn't end with D-Day, Fighting continued all the way up until V-Day, right? And much of that fighting was very costly and and brutal. But the war was decided on D-Day. So this is a way that many theologians have talked about the the relationship of of what they call the already and the not yet, right? So this is what, what the resurrection accomplished. Easter is a beachhead for the new creation, And so God's kingdom has arrived in the person of Christ. The resurrection is the moment it breaks in. And even though the war is continuing, because of the cross and the resurrection, its outcome is decided. And so we live in this in-between time between the old creation and the new. We live in this moment where the fighting continues, but the war is already won, right? So we live in between the times. And today's passage is here so that we can discover three ways to live in the in-between, three ways that we live in between the times. And without these three ways of living, I think it's safe to say that we will fail and our mission be rendered ineffective as disciples. We need this way of living. So firstly, we're going to jump right in into, into verses 9 to 13, 
And then I'm actually going to jump ahead slightly and do 22 to 23, and I'd like us to sort of think of these two things together. So firstly, in between the times, we live by the way of Christ. So let me read at, at verse 9. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one about the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, okay, so now why is it that the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they didn't recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that Jesus was speaking about John the Baptist. And later on, as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. So again, I want us to kind of think of those two sections together this morning. In between the times we live by the way of Christ. So last week on Easter, Steve covered the transfiguration. Transfiguration is this mysterious moment in Matthew where you've got Jesus, and he takes three of his disciples up a mountain with him, and then he's transfigured, right? Transformed before their eyes. The first second, he's just Jesus, as they know, you know, looks like a normal guy, and then the next second, it's like all the weight and all the importance of being Jesus is made visible. All his glory is made visible, and he's like radiant, and then these Hebrew historical figures show up, Moses and Elijah, and the glory of God descends like a cloud. It's this wild scene. And as Steve covered, essentially what we're seeing in the transfiguration is this moment where Jesus reveals the glory that he's bringing back to creation and, and humanity specifically. Jesus is bringing the image of God back to humanity, and he's able to do this because he is God in the flesh. So to put it another way, Jesus perfectly embodies the glory of God to restore the glory of humanity. Jesus perfectly embodies the glory of God to restore the glory of humanity. So that's kind of what we covered last week at Easter. And, and the reason why we did it on Easter is because the transfiguration shares something really huge with the resurrection. It's a glimpse of what's to come. It's this moment where the veil is kind of lifted, and we see that Jesus really is the one who is going to bring God's way of doing things back to earth. But it isn't going to happen in the way that anyone expects God's way of doing things is not going to come back to earth in the way that any of us would expect. So we have this scene now where, where this, these three disciples are, are coming down the mountain with Jesus, and they have questions after what they've just seen. They all grew up hearing about how God's kingdom would arrive through this political figure, right? This political figure who would show up and he would establish peace through violent overthrow if need be. And he wasn't supposed to be somebody who would, like, suffer. That wasn't part of the whole expectation of what a savior would do. He wasn't supposed to die naked and beaten to a pulp in between two common criminals. He wasn't supposed to give his life for the forgiveness of his enemies. That's crazy. He wasn't supposed to die shamefully outside the walls of the city. In short, Messiah was not supposed to be delivered into the hands of men. Men were supposed to be delivered into the hands of Messiah. And now they're walking down this mountain with this man who showed this incredible glory to them. Like, he's unmistakably the one they've been waiting for. And yet he keeps on saying 
that he is going to be handed over to die. So it raises these questions in the minds of the disciples. A question that's relevant to us today. If Jesus really is the one who brings the kingdom, shouldn't the kingdom look more like what we expect? Shouldn't it be a kingdom of glory and not a kingdom of costly love? But for Jesus, those two things actually go together. Costly love is the glory of God. And so that's what he's going to end up showing the disciples as they walk down the mountain. And it's going to be done through this question that seems really irrelevant to most of us, right? Like, oh, I thought Elijah was supposed to come first. Like, this is nitty-gritty, minor prophets, end times, Jewish expectation. And so it, it seems like it's, it's not getting to the point when you first read it, but it's actually exactly what we're talking about. So the disciples are confused because there's this verse from the prophets, from Malachi, it's the very ending of Malachi, where... The, the prophet says that, that Elijah is going to come and he's going to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, the children to the fathers, and he will restore all things. And this is supposed to be something that takes place just prior to the coming of Messiah. So the disciples are saying, okay, so it really seems like Messiah is here, but where was Elijah? Where was that whole bit about the hearts of the Israelites being turned to one another? Where was the whole restoring all things part that sounds awesome. It appears to be missing. Where did that happen, right? And so they ask Jesus, where's Elijah? When's that going to happen? And Jesus replies, it already did. But nobody recognized it for what it was. It didn't come in the way that they were expecting. And the disciples realize that Jesus is talking about his relative John the Baptist, John's ministry preceded Jesus's. They actually overlapped for a couple of years. And John's MO was basically this. He would show up at the Jordan River and he would confront Israel with their sins, tell them to, to drop their apathy and return to the God who called them. And then he would baptize them in the Jordan River as this symbol of their hearts being turned to God. So it was this spiritual restoration project that, that John was after. And he was restoring people back to God through repentance and, and through seeking forgiveness and, want, and you know, urging people to live the sort of life that, they, that, that God made them for. But not everybody appreciated that about John, right? So not everybody saw John as Elijah restoring all things. Instead, he, he ended up being unjustly executed in a prison cell because one too many people got sick of John's kind of restoration. Political restoration, lots of us can get behind that. Repentance is not very marketable. John lived and died by a costly love for God and for people. That was the path he walked. And Jesus says that it is the path that lies in front of him as well. The Son of Man is going to be delivered over. The kingdom will not come by Jesus taking to the campaign trail. It will not come by Jesus streamlining his social media presence or hiring like an ace marketing firm to make him look really good. He will bring God's rule into this world by embodying it through costly love. The way of the kingdom is to walk away from self-rule and to walk under the rule of God. That is the path. And if we want to be used for God's kingdom, it's the path in front of us as well. We will live cross-shaped lives. Jesus doesn't call the disciples to come and triumph, but to come and die. 
one of the hardest things for, for us, I think, as Americans is to not have things our way, right? This is like, a, like existential despair. Like, how can that be my way? We've become functional hedonists. We live for pleasure of one kind or another. We structure our lives around our desires and our priorities and our ambitions. We don't appreciate someone telling us what to do with our time or what to do with our money, what to risk ourselves for. We don't appreciate people telling us to change our minds or to change our behavior. We don't even appreciate them telling us to change our schedule. We value self-rule, self-government. And this kind of culture, one of the most confusing and curious things a person can do is to live for something other than themselves. Deep down, I actually think we are longing for someone to tell us to come and die. I think deep down we realize that living for ourselves is just crushingly boring, right? We're, we're eager for someone to tell us to lay down ourselves for the sake of something greater. Costly love is the way of glory. The crown goes together with the cross. So years ago, in a sermon, I talked about Shakespeare's Henry V. I thought I'd bring it up again because I think it, it helps to kind of make sense of some of this, of this relationship between glory and self-giving love. I think it makes sense of, the, of how the way of Jesus is the way to glory. So there's this part near the end of, of Henry V, if you're familiar with the play, where King Henry, or King Harry, is in front of his troops before the Battle of Agincourt, and they're wildly outnumbered. There's this ragtag bunch of English soldiers they are about to fight the French. And he, he stands up, and he's going to sort of rally them for this final battle that they're almost certainly going to lose, right? And so he, he gets up and stands before them and, and get, delivers this speech. And the Battle of Agincourt takes place on, on St. Crispin's Day. I'm not sure what St. Crispin's Day is. Apparently it's a holiday. And the Battle of Agincourt happened on it. So he's going to talk about, I'm going to quote him. He's going to talk about St. Crispin's Day. It's a day. Anyway, the English are wildly outnumbered. Many of them are going to die. And it's going to be agony and suffering and loss. And it's nothing anybody would ever choose for themselves, right? What's going to take place is nothing that anybody would choose. And yet Harry begins to talk. And the, the thing that he actually says in the speech is that what you're about to face is exactly what you should choose. So here's a couple quotes from me. He says that the man who outlives this day and comes safe home will stand a tiptoe when this day is named. And he'll strip his sleeve and he'll show his scars and say, these wounds I had on St. Crispin's day. Old men forget, yet all shall be forgot. But this story the good man is going to teach his son. And then here's the part that's wild. He says, and gentlemen in England who are now in their beds, they're going to go on to think themselves accursed because they were not here. They will hold their manhood cheap while anyone speaks that fought with us on St. Christmas Day. They're about to walk into just the agony of battle. And King Harry stands in front of them and tells them, this is exactly what you should want for yourself. Because on the other side of this battle is glory. But it's glory that's only possible because of the hardship. 
They would not be able to walk away from Agincourt with glory if they don't suffer the hardship. Without the battle, there is no glory. But the battle of costly love, following the way of Jesus, it's a battle that brings with it so much beauty and goodness and truth that over time, those who choose the other path will wish they had chosen the harder way. Discipleship to Jesus is a kind of self-denial, but it leads to glory. So why should I choose to orient myself around the way of Jesus? The glory of God. Why should I love others even when it costs me something? Glory. Why would I give up my reputation to make the gospel known to my neighbor? Glory. Why would I admit my wrongs even when it makes me look bad? Glory. Why should I pray? Why should I serve? Why should I worship other, something other than myself? Glory. Glory that only Jesus can give. Glory of becoming who you were always meant to be. Learning the way of costly love. Learning the way of the cross. Devoting ourselves to God. The God who gave himself up for us. There is meaning there. In between the times we live by the way of Christ. But in order to do that, we're going to need something, right? The task that's ahead of us following Jesus is way more than we can handle, and so we're going to need something in order to do it, and that something is faith. In between the times we live by faith in Christ, verses 14 to 21, and when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and, and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and suffers terribly, for often he falls into the fire, often into the water. I brought him to your disciples, and they couldn't heal him. And Jesus answered, oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon. And it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately, and they said, why could we not cast it out? He said to them, because of your little faith. For truly, I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. So here we are, Peter, James, John, Jesus, they just got down from the, the mountain, and the other nine disciples have gotten themselves into, into a little bit of a dilemma. So in chapter 10, Jesus commissions the disciples, and he tells them that they're going to actually participate in his work. So they're going to participate in his ministry. They're going to do a bunch of the stuff that he's been doing. He's going to include the disciples in the project. And apparently, while Peter, James, and John have all been up on the mountain, the, the rest of the disciples have been faithful to that, right? So they're going around. They're, they're attempting to, to heal and to exercise demons, and they run into this boy who has a demon that's manifesting in like seizure symptoms, and they can't cast it out. And then Jesus shows up, and he learns about the situation. He has this moment of frustration where he just says, how long am I to be with you? The disciples are supposed to carry the ministry of Jesus to the nations after he leaves. At this moment, the prospects for that aren't looking especially good. And so why is that? Why is Jesus frustrated? What are the disciples missing? And Jesus says they're missing the right kind of faith. They're missing the right kind of faith. So this is obviously a famous verse, the faith like a mustard seed verse. Many of us who have grown up in the church have probably encountered this a number of different times. And, and sometimes you run into a really interesting interpretation. This is kind of how I grew up thinking about it. 
And so if this does not apply to you, then that's totally okay. If it does apply to you, then hopefully this will be helpful. But I grew up kind of thinking about it like this. Like, okay, so I got it. We need faith to take part in Jesus's mission. And the amount of faith we need is actually very, very small compared to like the faith that Jesus has or something. But it's really a small amount comparatively. The problem is we actually have like microscopic faith. So we can't even manage the mustard seed. We have like, you know, protozoa faith. We need <laughs> mustard seed faith. And then, so you, what you end up doing is you start mustering up a feeling of faith. Like, okay, if I'm really going to be used by God, I need to sort of muster myself up into this, right? I need to feel full of faith, right? And if I get to, if that bar fills up, then I level up, right? Things happen, I can move mountains. So I remember interpreting this verse that way for years. And if something went, went wrong, if I, if like I was sharing the gospel with somebody and just biffed it, I would just assume that it was because I didn't have the right amount of faith. And so it ends up having this, this effect where you end up blaming yourself for, for stuff that probably has nothing to do with you. And what's interesting, too, is that when I was interpreting the passage this way, the focus was entirely on me. The focus was entirely on me and how I'm feeling and how I'm doing. All I'm thinking about is how well I'm mustering up the faith feeling. And I think that's really missing what Jesus is saying here. Again, Matthew is writing a whole book, right? And so when we run into a little phrase, we need to read that phrase in the context of the whole book, because Matthew is an author, so he's thinking of this in the context of a, of a whole book that he's writing, right? And this whole idea of little faith has come up a few times already. And it's been developed more. And so when it comes up here at this moment, I think Matthew just sort of expects us, like, I don't need to give all the explanation. Little faith, you know what I'm talking about. So I'll just do a brief recap about what this, what this actually means. So just one example, there's this moment where Jesus is walking out to the disciples on the Sea of Galilee. There's a storm, they're in a boat, and Jesus is walking out to them, and Peter realizes it's Jesus, and he tries to walk out to him. And Jesus invites him to do this, right? So Peter's walking on the water, and his gaze is fixed on Christ. And then suddenly he realizes, like, I don't think I can do this, right? Like, humans don't typically walk on water. And so it says he sees the waves. He sees the wind and the waves, the storm around him, and he begins to sink. Here's the point of that moment. Jesus calls him one of little faith. Here's the point. Peter's confidence shifted. It shifted away from confidence in Jesus and his power. Instead, his confidence shifted to himself. He started to ask, do I actually have what it takes to walk on water? Of course, the answer is no. His faith shifts away from a great object and onto a little object. So we need great faith to take part in extending God's rule. But the thing that makes our faith great isn't the amount of our faith, it's the object of our faith. When we take part in extending God's kingdom, we don't do it on the basis of how full of faith we are. We do it on the basis of how faithful Jesus is. Faith is leaning on the grace of Christ. It's leaning on the grace of Christ to empower us, to guide us, to be there for us, to comfort us, to, to give us the energy that we need to be faithful under pressure. And I think there are times in our lives where we feel what this is really like. Like for me, most often I, I have this experience, this, this sense of 
faith in Jesus during times of tragedy. Like when I've suffered loss of people in my life, there'll just be this sense of, man, so this is what it is to walk in faith. I think the reason why is because in those moments, I'm deeply in touch with my need. Like there's nothing like losing a loved one to tell you you are not in control, right? And so when I'm confronted with that in a time of tragedy, suddenly I'm finding myself walking in faith, walking by faith in Jesus and his power and his goodness and his faithfulness and not in my own competence or my ability to get up in the morning. The truth is, though, that outside of those times of tragedy, I don't experience a lot of that. I'm very self-deceitful, right? I lose touch with my sense of need. I imagine I'm not alone in that. And I wonder if part of the reason is that most of us American Christians are not living lives that require much faith. We tend to live very much in our comfort zone where things feel manageable. We look at ourselves, we say, I don't think I'm capable of very much when it comes to participating in the kingdom, so I'm going to do my small bit, set my sights pretty low because I don't want to fail. I don't want to risk. And so I'm going to participate in the kingdom manageably because really the object of my faith is my competence. And I think Jesus would tell us to have greater faith. See, when, when the focus of our faith is on the greatness of Jesus and not on the greatness of our own ability, then we will undertake risky things for God. Because all the most important things have been resolved. And we know that Jesus is capable, that Jesus is, is powerful enough, sufficient enough, faithful enough, that even with a mustard seed's worth of faith, that is more than enough for him to use, not because our faith is great, but because he is. We cannot break the habits of sin without faith in Jesus. We cannot love our neighbor as ourselves without faith in Jesus. We cannot make the best use of our time without faith in Jesus. We can't compassionately and patiently guide our friends into discipleship without faith in Jesus. Otherwise, we'll always be looking to our own potential to guide us, and we will never be enough. But because of Jesus, we can undertake brave things for the kingdom. And maybe that's the first step, just to, together, in community, to begin to live lives that can only happen through Jesus' power. In between the times we live by faith in Christ. Lastly, in between the times we live so that others might live, verses 24 to 27. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax, my translation says two drachma, I think the one that Michael read says half shekel, it refers to the same thing. Two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, yes. And when he went to the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when Peter said from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them. Go to the sea, cast a hook, and take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you'll find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. So kind of an odd scene. And it may not seem like, like much is making sense at first glance, but after I explain, I think you'll see this moment is actually like hugely charged 
It's like the very, very tense scene, actually. So here's what's going on. The temple is the absolute center of Jewish life in the first century. Not only is it the headquarters for the worship of God, it's like the center of Jewish culture. Pilgrims, like thousands upon thousands of pilgrims, go to the temple every year for different feasts. It's just buzzing with constant activity. It actually, like, this, this particular temple, it rises above the city itself. So, I mean, even the architecture of Jerusalem is made in such a way to rise up to Herod's temple. I mean, it's just this, like, the epitome of Jewish life at the time, and there's constantly priests making sacrifices. There's psalms being sung. It's a whole operation. And for a big operation, what do you need? You need manpower, right? So there's priests and there's scribes and there's different kinds of workers that are constantly operating to keep the place going. And so how do you keep a bustling cultural center like this going? You, you take a tax, right? You, you solicit donations to the temple. And so that's the way the leaders of the Jerusalem temple would keep the place going. They'd call it the two drachma tax. That's what the payment was. And so this temple official, he approaches Peter and he asks does Jesus pay that tax, right? Does Jesus pay the two drachma tax? Here's why this is so charged. We've already seen in the book of Matthew that Jesus is not always a friend to the Jewish authorities. He's not always friendly when it comes to, to, to the way that they treat people. He's often opposed them. And so when this temple official is asking Peter about the tax, he's asking does Jesus consider himself one of us? Does Jesus support the temple? It's kind of this, this big moment. And Peter just says, yes. We don't know if he actually knows that Jesus pays it or if he's just kind of trying to buy time. Matthew leaves it ambiguous, and so I'm not going to make a guess. But in any case, after Peter says yes, he goes into this house. Apparently, this conversation is taking place outside of a house, and Jesus is listening from the inside. And when Peter walks in, Jesus has this line where he says, from whom do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when Peter says from others, Jesus says to him, then the sons are free. What does he mean by that? So the question comes down to one of identity. See, the two drachma tax, it's not just a donation to keep the temple going. When you pay this tax, you're communicating solidarity. You're saying, I'm one of the people who worship the God of this temple. You're communicating kind of like, like an in-group thing, right? Like, I'm also one of the people who pay this tax. You're saying you're, you're one of God's people. But Jesus thinks that his disciples have a more intimate relationship with God than that. They aren't subjects. They're daughters and sons. And kids don't pay taxes to the king. The idea is that, it, that in the kingdom that is breaking in, the identity of God's people isn't determined by paying in. They are... Part of it by virtue of the fact that they're connected to Jesus. Peter has the right not to pay the tax because he's a son of God. Jesus certainly has the right not to pay the tax. He is the son of God. And here's where we see something amazing. Despite having rights, despite the rights disciples have in the kingdom, here in the in-between, if we're going to follow the example of Jesus, we will forego those rights in order to avoid unnecessarily offending people. This is what's so interesting about Jesus. When the topic of conversation is his identity as Messiah, oh, he's ready and willing to offend people. When the topic of conversation is the nature of the kingdom of God, 
he is ready and willing to offend people. When the, nature of the, when the conversation is on the nature of the gospel, he is ready and willing to offend people, but when it's about his own rights and whether or not he's going to, like, you know, save two drachma, you know, by, by demanding his rights, take it. Take the money. Do we live the same way? Most of us in America have been enculturated to try to get ours. And if it offends somebody too bad, like we're a competitive culture, man, I, uh, we think we have this, we think that having power is licensed to use power. No exceptions. But here we run into something different. Being a part of God's family is an identity that should shape everything about us. If you are in Christ, there is no value, no more value that could be added to you. You are valued in the eyes of God. If you are in Christ, then your identity is worth something, not because you've earned a worthy identity, but because Jesus has for you. And so it's this, this place of, of being a beloved child of God. It's a place of privilege. It is a privilege to follow Jesus. It is a privilege to be a part of the kingdom, a privilege given by grace alone, which is exactly why we don't have to ferociously guard our rights. People who fight and, and like insist on getting theirs in every single situation, they do that because they're insecure. And the children of God have an identity that should make them very secure, so secure that they are willing to give up their rights for the sake of other people. When you have an identity like the one that we have in Christ, then you have access to this like inner fortitude. That doesn't mean that you never try to advance in life. It doesn't mean that you never do something for yourself. That's not the point of this passage. The point is that as disciples of Christ, we have a new orientation. We're pointed in a different direction. We live so that others may live. And if insisting on our rights is going to end with somebody being turned off to Jesus, then unhesitatingly, we give them up. Disciples of Christ serve others before ourselves in between the times we live so that others might live. So this kind of behavior, living by the way of Christ, living by faith in Christ, living so that others might live, this is how we conduct ourselves in the time in between the times. And it is hard Sometimes it's dangerous, but it is the way to life. To do this well, especially in our like, hyper-comfortable context where most of us are being lulled to sleep by comfort and entertainment, we need each other to put a goad behind us to follow the way of Jesus. And it goes beyond just our own good. In this sermon, I've mainly focused on, on our own good, but it's also an example to the watching world. Living this way, by the way of Christ, by faith in Christ, and for the sake of others, living this way is a sign of the kingdom. So as most of you probably know, on Easter Sunday, there were a series of bombings in Sri Lanka. So ISIS has taken credit. There's been no third-party evidence that it was them, but they've taken credit. And the bombings seem to follow the, the pattern of past ISIS attacks. So they tend to target populations that represent Westernization to them. So the bombings in this case were at hotels, so they were targeting foreign tourists or Western tourists, and the other population were Christians in their churches. 
The attacks on Sri Lanka are, is one of, if not the worst, terrorist attack that we've seen since 9-11 with a death toll of over 250 people, many of them children. And for this past week, the eyes of the world have suddenly turned to Sri Lanka and to the Sri Lanka churches. And how are they going to respond to this injustice, this brutality, this evil? Our brothers and sisters are living in the in-between and they have been rising to the challenge. So one senior pastor of Zion Church, one of the target sites, he, this is a public statement that he made. We are hurt, we're angry, but still, as the senior pastor, this whole congregation, every family affected, we say to the suicide bomber, and also to the group that sent the suicide bomber, we love you. And we forgive you, no matter what you've done to us, we love you, because we believe in Jesus. Sorry. Jesus Christ on the cross, he, he continues, he says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. We also, who follow the footsteps of Jesus, we say, Father, forgive these people. Like, I'm just astonished by those words. One leader in the uh, Muslim community, he's, a, he's actually the leader of the Muslim party in um, the Sri Lankan parliament. He saw this kind of behavior from the Christians just widespread from the, the church as a whole. And in a public statement he made, he said, I just bow to the Christian community for practicing the words of Jesus. It is a picture of the kingdom under pressure. The darkness has closed in on our brothers and sisters, and it has not overcome them. It is beauty in the midst of violence. It's poetry written out of grief. It's glory. May we follow our Lord Jesus in the same way. I'd like to, to close in prayer now and... What I'd like to do as I begin is for us to take a moment of silence for Sri Lanka. And then I'm going to pray for them. I'm going to pray for comfort. I'm going to pray for justice. And then I'm going to pray for our enemies. And then I'm going to ask the Lord to help us grow by the example of our sisters and brothers in between the times. Let's pray and take a moment of silence to pray for our brothers and sisters. Lord Jesus, have mercy.
I can't imagine what it's like to lose a kid this way or to lose a loved one this way. Lord Jesus, have mercy. God, we pray for comfort that your presence would be felt like it never has before. God, I pray that the hope of the resurrection would be real to our brothers and sisters. And God, I do pray for justice. I pray for the end of evil. Lord, you love goodness even we do. We know that you will be faithful to eradicate evil from our world. Even as you're faithful to be eradicating it from our hearts. So God, I pray that you would bring down evil. That you would not let this go without justice. Vengeance is yours. But also, Lord, for those very same people that that I'm asking you to bring justice on, I also ask you to bring your grace to them. And if it were not for your grace, we would be the same way. So God, I pray for your forgiveness, that you would not hold these wrongs against them through the blood of Jesus. I pray that ISIS would come to an end as a result of revival. We know that you love our enemies as much as you love us. And it's for them that you died. Lord, I also pray for President Sirisena, that you would give him direction now, put leadership in place to make the right decisions for the nation of Sri Lanka. And God, I pray for us that we would follow the way of Jesus, that we would learn from our brothers and sisters. God, I love them. Thank you for them. We love you, Jesus. Give us more grace. We thank you for making us a part of your kingdom. 